Welcome to the Forest Overstory podcast. This podcast explores forest stewardship in the Pacific Northwest, helping landowners and professionals gain new insights and information in the field of forest management. The Forest Overstory is a product of the Washington State University Extension Forestry Program and is supported by the Washington Department of Natural Resources and the Society of American Foresters. All right. Well, Happy New Year and welcome back, Forest Overstory listeners. Uh, As you know, we took a short hiatus over the fall since our last episode in September. Uh, We are back in the swing of things for season two, as I'm calling it. I am, of course, Patrick Schultz, returning as your host. Uh, As we announced in our last episode, Sean Alexander has left uh, his position at WSU to take a job in Oregon. Uh, We really hope he's doing well down there, uh, but he will obviously be missed as co-host. I'm running as solo host today, but in future episodes, you're likely to hear some other voices from the WCU Extension Forestry team, uh, either as co-host or host, just to keep things interesting. Um, But I'm really excited to kick things off today. We have a a great episode in store. We're joined by a very exciting guest. Uh, He is an award-winning tree farmer and the current chair of the Washington Tree Farm Program. Uh, Dave New is on with us. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing fine. How are you, Patrick? I'm great. Great. Uh, thanks for joining us. Very excited to talk with someone like you. You've been such a, a strong partner for WCU Extension for a long time, especially for uh, my colleague, Kevin Zobrist up north, because um, you manage uh, Norse Tree Farm. And that's a very well-known tree farm in the area. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a, a little more about that. Well, okay, where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> We didn't start with maybe where where is Norse Tree Farm? Where, let's start where with is that. okay? Let's start with that. Okay. <laughs> it's it's really easy to find if you're driving north on Interstate Five, or if you're driving on Interstate Five at all. You take exit two twelve, which is the Stanwood Camino Island exit, and instead of driving toward Camino Island, you drive east one and a half miles, and we've got the big sign right in front of it that says Norse Tree Farm. So you can't nice. miss it as you go by. So the listeners can come and find you. No. They can, yeah, <laughs> and and I've. And um, well, if, if, if any of you have seen any of the videos we produced of, the, of our wildlife, I've got a YouTube channel with wildlife on it. And you'll see that, that we have a bridge that has a sign on it that says Golden Gate Bridge. And of course, because the gate is gold. And mm-hmm. so, like I say to everybody, you, visitors are welcome. And if you come, you can even go across the Golden Gate Bridge without paying a toll. <laughs> I like that. So uh, it's property that's been in my wife's family since 1942. Her her grandfather, Leroy Norse, who was, uh, who that's that's the name, Norse Tree Farm, uh, bought it for family recreation. He was kind of a hard scrabble uh, chicken farmer during the Depression, just made a living any way he could. And he had land all over the place. And uh, this is one of those last remaining parcels that didn't get sold off at the end of um, we were able to acquire it when um, Dar's uncle died, and he left he left quite a bit of property to ten heirs. And then we didn't think we were going to be able to keep it. But then the recession hit in two thousand and eight, and and uh, though the property had been sold to a developer, the de- developer went bankrupt, and we were able to uh, the, the estate had to take the property back, which meant which then gave us the chance to acquire it from the estate because of changes in zoning regulations for, for Snohomish County, availability of water, 
and a reduced price of land in general during that time, which then allowed us the opportunity to buy it from the estate. Wow, I didn't I didn't know that. That's uh, what an I interesting could go, story. I could probably I could talk an hour about just about that. Uh, it took us six years to settle the estate, and and as a part of that, then I took the from Kevin. I took the um, the ties to the land class, and I mm. highly recommend that class to anybody who hasn't taken it to help with their family planning or legacy planning for their properties. And that helped us uh, immensely so that in the future, we won't have that problem in our tree farm. Yeah. And just uh, for a little background for the listeners, Ties to the Land is actually, it's a program out of um, Oregon, Oregon State University that helps uh, landowners sort of navigate the process of uh, succession planning. It's a, it's a really great course, and those resources are available online if you just look up Ties to the Land. I highly uh, recommend it. Yeah, so, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's a course we don't get to do a lot because uh, it doesn't deal with the, the nitty-gritty necessarily of management, um, but it's something that I didn't think I was going to enjoy doing, but I actually did. You know, yeah, I don't get, yeah, I didn't go to school uh, for forestry to talk about succession planning, but that class is always really interesting because you get all these families together and they have to kind of talk about some of this stuff for the first time, which can be uncomfortable. Um, yeah. So what was that like for you guys? You have, uh, it sounds like you had a really big and complex family situation yes. to deal with. Yes. Yeah. And it, 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 like I said, it took us six years to settle the estate and, and so that we could then make all the, the other heirs happy and, and keep this mm. section of land, this bit of land that's 160 acres for ourselves. And that led, and so it hadn't been managed as forest land before that point, but because it had been sold to a developer, it came off of the open space, out of open space. And so we needed to get it back into open space. And so I hired a forester to write our first forest management plan for us. And this is when I had my first aha moment and, uh, with the property. He came back and he said, Dave, you have an overmature stand of 60 acres of alder up on top of the hill. And unless you take it down, it's going to fall down. And then you're going to have a real mess on your hands. Mm. And so we had, a, we had a long, hard family discussion. And there was a lot of resistance in the family to cutting the trees down. Because what? Cut the trees down? The kids... The, it's not going to grow back in my lifetime and we're not going to have those woods. Well, before I retired, I worked as a civil engineer and land surveyor and I had seen people uh, hire, uh, hire uh, professionals to help them with their land and then, and then not follow the advice of the professionals they hired and really get themselves into trouble. And so that's what I said. Look, we've hired a professional forester to give us some advice. We're best off to follow it so that we don't get into trouble. And uh, so we ended up doing that and we hired the forester to, to manage the timber sale for us and, and then replanted. And as it turns out, there's a clump of trees that was the same vintage as the ones up on top of the hill that was in an area that didn't get harvested. And those trees have all died now and are falling down. And so we, <laughs> so we, we caught it just in time to, to get a market value out of it. And then replant. Otherwise, we'd have had, like they said, we would have had a real mess on our hands. So that was your sort of forest management awakening. Yes. Uh, understanding that a declining red alder stand is exactly that, <laughs> and it's exactly not going to get good. Yeah, that's and, interesting. And so, with that, then, 
knowing that we were going to go into this harvest situation, um, I needed to learn all I could. I didn't know anything about forestry. So this is where, this is where Kevin came in. Um, I started taking classes from him right and left as I could, going to the field days and whatnot, and t taking the coach planning class so that I ended up writing mm -hmm. my own uh, uh, forest management plan. And um, and so that, that, that my, my original goal there was just to be able to ask, know what questions to ask as we were going through the whole process uh, of, of harvesting. But then the, 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 so that was my first aha moment. And then the second aha moment was actually when we were doing the, uh, as we were preparing for the harvest, we had to get it permitted. And the forester was doing all of that, but whenever he had somebody on site, I would come there with him. And we needed to build a bridge, which is now the Golden Gate Bridge, um, mm. to, to, so we could go across a creek to get up the hill to access the to access the, the, the harvest site. And they sent Wayne Watney. A lot, some of you that have been around a, a while will remember Wayne Watney, who was a biologist for the Fish and Wildlife Department, who was doing. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, who was doing the HPAs, the, the, the hydraulics permits for timber harvest at that time. And he pointed down into this little creek right where we were going to put the bridge. And there were some fish about three inches long. And he said, those are baby cohos. And I said, what? This is the second <laughs> aha moment for us. How can this be? Because this creek goes dry every summer. And uh, cohos are a fish that have to be in the stream for two years before they go out to sea. So how could they be in this stream that goes dry every summer? Summer, But there they were. And so we knew that this stream went down into a lower field that had been a hay pasture that, that and, is, and, is, and at the time and still is uh, um, reed canary grass. And it, the stream loses all definition whatsoever in this, in this field. And there's no channel or anything. And the previous winter we had seen a bunch of dead salmon in that field. And there had been flooding in Pilchuck Creek, which is adjacent to our property. And we thought, well, those are just fish that kind of washed up and didn't, as part of the flood, and got lost from Pilchuck Creek. But with this now, we could see that, no, they were indeed trying to get up the, the little little stream behind that goes behind the barn. And, uh, and so I said to, the, to Wayne, I said, who do we talk to so that we can get the stream channel fixed in the lower field for these uh, for these fish, and and he said talk to the conservation district, mm -hmm. and so we approached the Snohomish Conservation District, and and it took a couple of years before we could really get started, but they helped us um, put rechannel the the stream through the lower field, so that it actually has a channel now, and that as a way. For the fish to come up and this being what this is about the time of year when they come up so right it, and so i've i've never actually had the pleasure of seeing your tree farm uh, and it's something i i would love to to get up there eventually but i have heard about this riparian restoration project uh quite a bit actually and my understanding too is that you've also done quite a bit of planting uh, and some, I think, some interesting yeah. experimentation in that regard. Can you well, tell us a little bit? Yeah, we well, we had a lot of help from the conservation district there too. We have everywhere we have um, stream frontage, we've put 
we've put that area into a crep easement. Okay. So we, so we have 30 acres of crep easement on our property, which is which is a lease program. Crep was a conservation reserve enhancement program yes. uh, with, with the uh, NRCS, uh, uh, USDA program. Um, and so they pay us as a, as a rental for this. So we can't do anything commercial wise, plan anything that would, that would, that would be a commercial value within this easement, but they pay us a rental fee for that, which helps cover taxes and send some maintenance on the property as well. But we have replanted the, the, uh, rip the area with, uh, with live stake willows. And then in the field, we're, we're, we're struggling to get the, uh, the, the reed canary grass shaded out. It's it's a real it's a real chore, but yeah, <laughs> I'm I, I've with the tree farmer of the year that we had this last year, uh, Bob Barker in Whatcom County. He he converted seventy acres of reed of marginal pasture land, mostly reed canary grass, into a forest over a twenty year periods. So I know that it can be done. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll keep at it. That's I mean. Yeah, maybe we could take a little uh, side trail here and get into the nitty gritty because reed canary grass. I mean, anyone listening that deals with reed canary grass just knows exactly why we're uh, uh, referring to the headache that it causes. It is, uh, I mean, it's just such a painful thing to try to get rid of and try to get um, uh, trees planted into. So, what do you know? What what Bob Barker did? What was his success? His, you know, in terms of site prep, I. I Yes, what they did. Now there, there's a little bit different situation than we are. They don't have as our property is slightly sloping, so we don't have as much standing water as he did. What they okay. ended up doing was deleveling, where they dig, they take an excavator and dig holes out, and then make mounds, the, the equivalent of a tree falling over and leaving a big root wad. Interesting. And then planting on top of that, and 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 it worked for him. That and he used the blue tubes. The the biodegradable blue tubes that are still there sure. 20 years later. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I have my issues with those. So that's really interesting. I had not heard of that method. What What did you do uh, prior to planting? Um, well, the um, live, tall live stakes for the willows that would stick above the, the reed canary grass. And, and, and then there's some spruce, um, some other things. So this, again... Most of the replanting was done by a crew with the uh, conservation district, and they had a whole bunch of mixture of plants and whatnot, and and quite a bit of that has died back now. But there are some spruce trees that are coming that have now poked their nice. heads up above the reed canary grass, and and I originally told them I didn't want any cottonwoods out there because <laughs> not a fan, not a fan of cottonwoods, but <laughs> I but I think now. That if you want to shade them out, that might not be a bad way to go because they grow fast mm -hmm. and they can again be done from live stakes. And so, it, I've tagged a bunch of uh, we've got a bunch of uh, 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 cottonwood stems that are oh they're, they're they're not really trees yet, but they're about ten feet tall that we're going to cut off this winter and and uh, plant in the reed canary grass, and they should do all right. Yeah, that's that's a great strategy. Live stakes, it's it's a it's kind of like a jump start. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they really kind of rip out of the ground once you put them in there. The willows don't do really well at shading out the reed canary grass. It grows right in them, but it, it's not quite as dense as the mm -hmm. 
as um, it is out in the field, but it, it, there's still quite a bit of reed canary grass in and along the channel there, but they did grow pretty quick. And since that time, we've had, a, we've had beavers come back in, along the creek, and the, the willows are fodder for the, for sure. the, for the beavers. And, but that's okay, because then they, they come back as copus stems right everywhere where they cut them off. They come back right. really quickly. Yep. And, <laughs> it's but, funny with landowners i noticed there's well there's two kinds of landowners there's those that really want beavers and those that really don't uh and my understanding too is there's actually programs out there that do beaver exchanges uh they can trap a beaver in one area and move them to another area where there's not as you know there, there's a low population and uh it's a really interesting idea because the stream is in an area that we can't harvest anyway the fact that there's beavers in there doesn't bother us Right. Um, yeah. And they have created some ponding, which is good. But again, this is a stream that goes dry every summer. So they're there. They become typically they become active in the early spring and they build their dams. And and this year, this last year, they even they built a lodge. But then in July, the, the water went away and they had to leave. So. <laughs> <laughs> poor planning on their part. Yeah, poor planning on their part. <laughs> That's funny. So I, I mean, I have to ask because, you, you know, you're not alone in dealing with a degraded, you know, riparian uh, stream on your property. And what, you know, what was the impetus to actually get in there and, and get all that, that work? It's a tremendous amount of work. What, what was the motivation for that? For the fish. Yeah. For the fish, so we've and now at every fall and late fall there is a uh, a run of silvers that comes up and spawns in the creek right there, and there's um, now I haven't seen them yet this year. There's a there's a crew from the Department of Fish and Wildlife that does that um, they do surveys of the fish that are there that, that count the reds the reds being R E D D S, that that's where the fish are have laid their eggs in in the gravel mm. each nest it's called a red and they count the reds and count the fish and um they said yeah this has been this has been great the last few years because of this restoration they've, they've been impressed with what, what how it helped that probably feels pretty good yeah it does and uh in a, in a previous life before i was into uh as I was growing up, I used to go fishing all the time with my dad down on, on the Columbia River. And so fish, salmon coming back upstream has always been important to see for us. And just 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 seeing them there and not even, not catching anything, just actually just seeing them. And I also fished commercially parts of two summers in southeast Alaska, too. So it's... Oh, wow, can, I didn't know that. So, um, yeah. Just well, just being able to provide for the salmon is just is really important to us. That's really cool, um, and it's a great example of not just what landowners can do, but I think to what uh, what people can do with assistance. Uh, you know, and taking advantage mm -hmm. of those programs. You you took advantage of multiple programs to yes. to get that work done. Yeah. Uh, so landowners, you know, that are facing something similar, it's good to know they're not really in it alone. Yeah, and we couldn't have done it without the help from the conservation district, and also with that crap easement, we couldn't have done it ourselves. Right, wouldn't have or would not have been successful. And with that, then also, as I said, the it was the conservation district that did all the permitting for that, and, and 
so that we could do that. And, and, and um, you know, it's funny how the Corps of Engineers is concerned about wetlands. Well, the whole area that we restored the, tr- the stream in was a wetland area. The stream itself is not wetlands, but this, everything around it is. There can be in our case. And so they were concerned that we were going to be filling wetlands as we excavated the streams. So, mm. so there's, we had some issues to get around there, but we made it all work. <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> I had the, had the conservation district to run interference for us on that. Yeah, that's good. Good. It wouldn't be a restoration project without a little bit of bureaucracy. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious, kind of back to where we started this conversation. You you had these aha moments, um, and just in thinking about your your management objectives for the tree farm, what were they before your aha moments, and what are they now? Well, before we had before we had our first. Uh, management plan we had no plans whatsoever we thought the place would take care of itself right yep and so then then with the management plan then you know we did the harvest and and now are managing the return of of the the, that replanted area and then we also have 30 acres on the other side of the road that was harvested where there was a Jippo logger came in and, and basically took Dar's uncle for a ride and he never got anything out of it except for a, a ruined stand of trees. And, mm. and so it grew back without any management whatsoever. And, and in our management plan up until now, uh, for the last 10 years, it's been, it has been wait 10 years and see where we are and then go from there. So we have come to the end of that 10 year period. And so we're going to basically look at that again and, and, and do some sort of a harvest. We don't expect to make any money off of it, but what we do expect is we do hope for is to be able to harvest and then replant with something that'll be more durable than alders that are real spindly and are gonna fall down in a few years. Alders and cottonwoods, again, my beloved cottonwoods. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you like cottonwoods? Because you cut them down and they fall down and then they lie on the ground and then they sprout up again. (laughs) <laughs> and, and you can't leave any branches around or they just grow they just grow like wild you have to, and then you have to deal with it multiple times that's so they have their place you know down in the riparian area where we can't do anything but up in areas where we're trying to create stands they they have created a lot of problems for us <laughs> no that's really every, everybody has their their favorite and their maligned trees <laughs> so when when we replanted the 60 acres of uh, i planted about we had 15 of those acres planted with uh, alder. And um, so now those trees are just going gangbusters. They're, mm. up, they're up to six or eight inches BBH and after eight years, they're just going great guns. And so the, they're getting to the point where, we're need, where we need to thin them out. And as it turns out, there are most of the thinning that needs to be done are cottonwoods, and so um, what we're gonna we're not gonna we're not cutting them down. Again, again, if you cut them down, they lay on the ground and then they resprout. So what we're doing is um, we're um, just hack and squirt. I'm gonna using the herbicide sure. and then leave them standing and get the leaves off them, and so so to provide the light necessary for the alders around them, and and then. Uh, and if, if it turns out that the, the alders were too spindly, 
then perhaps they would provide some structural support to hold them up so they wouldn't blow down. Also, mm -hmm. by leaving them standing, then they won't be they won't cause any damage to the standing trees as a as a process of falling them. Well, I, I want to switch gears uh, for a second because, I mean, I, I could talk management for several hours. I'm sure you could too. But I alluded to something earlier, and I want to make sure we, we talk about it. Uh, you are an award winner uh, and a pretty pretty big award winner. You're the National Tree Farmer of the Year from, was it 2020? 19, 2019. 2019. So for those of you that aren't familiar um, the uh, American Tree Farm Program uh, awards the National Tree Farmer of the Year, um, well, annually, and it's a very prestigious award. It's, I mean, you're you're competing with tree farms from uh, around the country, and uh, yeah, Norse Tree Farm won in 2019. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what led to that and like what what that experience was like. Well at the time and somewhat I, I still feel sort of like an imposter because <laughs> you know we haven't been at it as long as most of these people that win these awards have been at it forever you know, like mm -hmm. they but what we did have what we did bring to it was um just persistence and the use of programs to help and looking for assistance you know we were we reached out and got a lot of help and um, as I said in the in the acceptance speech, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you receiving this award if it hadn't been for all the help we had received from all kinds of people, and the local tree farmers, the the the, the um, Washington Farm Forestry people, the, the WSU Extension, the Conservation District, um, and and even well, the, the, my wife's grandfather for buying the property initially your uncle for not selling it to the developer and, mm -hmm. and then and then <laughs> even the recession for making it so we could keep the property but the recession that was bad news for everybody else except us in this case um well yeah i mean it's it's such a a cool story and i imagine that contributed to yeah. the award but but i also have to say like I, I know or my it's my understanding at least that part of the the criteria for that award is exactly what you described is is utilizing resources yep. uh and, 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 and not just utilizing but but also uh giving back to some degree and you know offering up your property as a place uh for learning yeah and and i know you've done a lot of that too so i mean it's uh you know a lot of tree farmers you know you can be a great steward and that's a big part of the criteria as well obviously is being a good steward uh and just doing it all yourself and and kind of keeping that to yourself that's totally fine um but you know a, such a big part of this award is is that interaction that you've uh emphasized so i, I think it makes sense when we, winner. when we received the state award in 2018 there were some uh well it was an election year and mm. there were some things that we needed to get publicized in, in, in terms of assistance programs like WSU Extension Forestry. There was there was a lack of funds for that. The conservation district needed money. So we had an open house right after we received the state award. Look, and we said, look, these are people that have helped us. And these are people that need help from funding wise. 
and and this and this is how they were able to help us. And so, in addition to the general public, we had a number of elected and officials there and people running for office, and were able to impress upon them the need for th these kinds of programs. And that's amazing. Yeah, it's such a big platform. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and we were able to, and we got a front page uh, story on the Everett Herald and and because of that and as a part of the lead up to that open house, which all helped. Yeah. And we had, we had, a, we had a lot of good help from the tree farm program and W's and, uh, and the um, farm forestry for getting the publicity out for that again. And so we have made our property into a place where it is possible to have classes and whatnot. When we, we have parking for, we can have, we can park a hundred vehicles there. Oh, have, that's nice. And we didn't, we didn't, we haven't ever had to put that many there, but we've been able to do that. And we have, when we built our, um, our, our um, cabin there, I guess we, we call it a, a carriage house, but the, the, we finished it a year ago, year and a half ago. Uh, we've had quite a bit of problem with vandalism. So we didn't want any windows on the first floor. So the first floor is a two car garage. And then on the, also on the first floor, we have a, a bathroom that has both an inside door and an outside door so that we don't have to have porta potties. We can have 50 people there without having a porta potty just by having the outside door to our bathroom. And, and we've hosted a number of events there because of that and, and are always willing to do more that way. Um, when, and obviously, we, we, we don't want to have everything there because there are <laughs> lots of other great properties to see. But when our turn comes up, we're more than willing to, to share the property. Well, and I know that, um, I mean, because you're up north, you're in Kevin's region, and, and I know he's he's been incredibly grateful to, to you for that. Um, and I have to just say, and I've probably said it before, maybe many times on this podcast, but um, we just rely so heavily on landowners like you. Uh, we really couldn't make so many of our educational programs, they just have to be hosted by someone, right? As someone with forest land. Um, and it's, I have to say too, we always joke, uh, it's very difficult to find uh, landowners that can host. And a lot of it's because of that parking piece you mentioned. Uh, so many tree farmers, we joke, just fill every square foot with a tree, right? If there's yeah. a place where a tree can be planted, then it's going to be there, <laughs> which is great. But we, uh, you know, <laughs> we need parking lots for our workshops. So it's good that you you have that accessibility. It's really important. Um, and yeah, it's just it's very it's uh, incredible that you're offering up your property for that. Well, we don't do just that. Um, we live in the city, and so we yeah. have lots of friends that live in the city. And our daughter again also lives in the city. And as such. Uh, we have a big garden at the property and so a part of the garden is we have a big pumpkin patch and so that every october then we have a pumpkin party where people come and um, everybody gets to take a pumpkin home and so this last year we had 80 people here for that oh that's so cool and so that again allows us to reach out and tell our tree farm story to people that normally wouldn't hear it yes that's awesome that's really important um, you know, we focus so much on landowner outreach, but public outreach, getting people aware of the issues and, and small forest owners and what they do. That's really important. And, uh, that sounds like a really good time. 
to be yeah, honest. Yeah, it was. It, it is party. every year. All right. Well, we are uh, getting towards the end, and I want to make sure that we uh, discuss, you know, the this other facet of of what you do in the realm of of small forest owners, uh, which is you're the current chair of the Washington Tree Farm Program, uh, which actually administers at least the state level Tree Farmer of the Year award. Uh, and I want to make it very clear that you were not the chair when you won the award. <laughs> no, so everyone knows that. Um, well, part but- of that was we asked we ask our current tree farmer of the year every year to serve two years on the committee to st- to attend to attend our quarterly meetings, and that's how I became involved. Is they asked me to, oh. I, and so even up until I you know I'd, I'd become a little, we were managing our own property. But I wasn't really involved on the greater issues things until they asked me to participate on the uh, state committee. And so I like to say that they gave me the opportunity to drive four hours each way through uh, (laughs) rush hour traffic in Everett, Seattle, uh, uh, Federal Way, Tacoma (laughs) and Fort Lewis to go to to go to a two hour meeting in Olympia four times a year. That's right. <laughs> That's funny. I live in Olympia, so I don't get to, or I don't, I don't have that issue. And I, I think they're mostly online now anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we the, the pandemic changed that. We changed all our meetings to being on Zoom. Um, and we're going to, we're going to change it. Uh, we're going to do a hybrid meeting this next meeting in January. Oh, cool. And so, yes, like once again, I'm going to drive through the rush hour traffic to go to Olympia, but everybody else can, they can come and meet with us in, in Olympia, or they can participate online. And that's been really good this way because we have expanded our uh, attendance to be truly all from all over the state. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that is like, it's a cursed blessing. We all like to see each other, but uh, the online platform, it makes it so much easier it to sure get does. a broad audience. Um, but I, I want to explain to the listeners, if they're not aware, what the Washington Tree Farm Program uh, is and uh, what the kind of primary function is. But I know there's lots of special projects going on, too. Uh, can you give us kind of a, an overview of what the program does? Yeah, we certif- the, the, the main thing that we do is to certify tree farms to sustainable uh, as being sustainable to standards that are set by the American tree farm system. Right. There are about 1500 tree farms in the state of Washington covering 370,000 um, acres in the state that are, that are currently certified in the program. Now, if you look at the, the overall number of acres of forested land in the state that's privately held, that's a drop on the bucket. So we're trying to reach out, the more, but but it does take quite a bit of it takes a it takes a concerted effort by a whole bunch of volunteers. We have about a hundred volunteer um, inspectors that are well. They're some of them are in, are in private practice. Others work for the DNR, and we we've got a whole bunch of DNR ones that have just come online with their now, new expanded program mm-hmm. that that go out and that we assist people to get their. Um, with their management plans, or the, the foresters do. But when once you get a forest management plan in place, then we'll, we'll send an inspector out to look at the property, and with with the owner, and basically go through the the form, which 
which is which are the standards for the AF the DFF standards or the tree farm standards. And uh, it doesn't cost anything; it's entirely free. And you, once you're approved, then you get to put that nice uh, green and white diamond sign in front of your property. And, right. Yeah, and I'm sure people have seen those around. Yeah, um, and yeah, and it, it, it feels a good, good program. to put that sign up. It does. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. And in Western Washington here, that's a we, that's just it. We get that pride of ownership of having that sign. In Eastern Washington, especially the farther east sections where they are within range of the Idaho Forest Group mills, they will pay a premium for mm. wood that comes from certified tree farms. We don't have that quite yet here in Western Washington, but but not only will they pay a premium for timber harvested on uh, to the owner, but as the tree farm program, then we get uh, a, a, we get a little bit from them as, as well on that. So that helps fund some of our programs. Right, but it's not unreasonable down the line to think that that could exist in Washington too, or Western uh, Washington. Yeah. You know, as as uh, log buyers or the market in general is going to uh, want to ensure that the wood is coming from uh, places that are practicing sustainable harvesting, uh, the tree farm program is well in place to to fit into that. We are entirely, or not in, not not entirely, but mostly a volunteer program. We have one half-time paid administrative staff person who, who keeps us all in line, and and manages the program for us. And but the rest of the positions are all volunteer. Um, in my current position as chair, it, it's a six-year commitment on my part for this. First two years as I was two years as the vice chair, and now I'm in. I've just finished my first year as chair. I've got one more year as chair, and then I will be two years as the past chair to help with institutional knowledge. And then the past chair is also in charge of the selection of the tree farmer of the year. And oh. then, but in addition to the, uh, the, uh, tree, the tree farm certification and tree farm of the year, we have our fall seminars, the, 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 the educational programs that where we lean on let's see you've been involved with those haven't you patrick you've been in oh yeah i've helped plan yeah. the west side one for the last you, you, uh, right. three you, or four years you with and nick, nick coons yeah. yeah you and nick have been very good very uh, very helpful with that and then we have an east side one now as well that the last year it was andy perleyberg on the east side that ran it and, mm -hmm. and and then and originally back in the day before the pandemic we had it as we we did it all in person um would rent a place like the well, like the one year was at Pack Forest, and another year right. it, it was at um, the museum, the Veterans Museum in Chehalis. Yep. Mm -hmm. And we had a pretty good attendance at both those, and, and a good and good programs, good speakers that came. And and each of these, in each of these cases, you can go to our website and see these webinars that were put on. We've saved them. There's some there's some really good information on all of that that's that's available online right yeah and, and COVID really changed the way uh, semi-permanently how we do things yeah, but uh, you know we've been able to do some in-person components for the last uh well actually the last two um uh fall forestry seminars and last year's was was a lot of fun we've been getting out in the field more than going off to like you know the veterans museum and doing it conference style but um, someday we may get back to that model. But yeah, it's 
it's amazing how many really outstanding tree farmers there are out there that are a part of the program. And, yeah. and, and, and I've had a chance to visit and see a number of these places and it's, it's just, it's just an amazing group of people to be associated with. And, it's an excellent program, and I really I, I encourage any uh, forest owner out there, if you've got a, a management plan, you're most of the way there. If you don't have a management plan, there are resources to help you get one. Um, so reaching out to the Tree Farm Program, get that process started. Well, you know, Dave, how, how do people get that process started? Once you, have your, once you have your management plan in place, contact the Tree Farm Program. Um, I don't have that contact information right here in front of me, but um, I, it's we've got watreefarm.org. Yeah, I just Googled it to, to make sure, but yeah, watreefarm, watreefarm.org. Yeah, that, that's the and, landing and, page. And, and there's a place right there where you can just contact us and, and we will send an inspector out to we'll contact you and we get you in contact with one of our inspectors to come out and and go through the the standards with you and like i said because of the way if you've got a forest management plan and if you're in, in washington state complying with all the rules forest rules you're 99 percent of the way there right and there are a few things like the forest of what is it for a forest of regional importance Forest of recognized importance. Um, that's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Forey and that and those are all the the inspector will help you get through those parts of it. And it's it's a point of pride to be able to put that green sign in front of your property. And I as I said before, it doesn't cost a dime. It's just and we'll give you the free sign, the first one. The second one costs twenty five dollars or so. <laughs> that's not too bad not too bad and the other thing that we do is we we've started putting out a calendar every year and they're, avail right. they're available for sale now uh, at the uh, tree farm website for next year and if you if you're a, a forester with the SAF Society of American Forestry in Washington State or if you own a certified tree farm then you're eligible to submit pictures every year to be in that calendar and we have typically some time in september a, a deadline for submitting those pictures and all the pictures on that calendar came from uh, either tree farms or foresters that are with the saf yeah i thought that was a really cool idea because i mean every, every landowners always have lots of really great pictures from their property whether it's like you know uh, an owl or or just like a great landscape shot uh, i've really loved those calendars so far so yeah i know that uh, washington tree farm program the inspection process i mean it really does rely on a lot of volunteers like you said some people in the in the private market but also dnr foresters conservation district foresters to get those inspections done i mean it's it's awesome that there are certified inspectors out there volunteering their time but then I know that up at the higher level, there are people that uh, contribute uh, quite a bit of time uh, and are involved with the Washington Tree Farm Board and, and various committees. Um, yeah, who, who all's on that list? Well, there's there's a number of people that put a lot of time for a lot of years. Um, the Bob Obensinski is our immediate past chair. He's he's been as involved for I don't know how many years, um, and then our then I'm the chair, and our our vice chair is Tom Agents, who is a forester, but also a um, 
a wood chip buyer in eastern Washington at a mill in uh, in Wapato. And then um, um, Elizabeth Ide is our administrator in Olympia, and we rely on um, our, let's see, our, our, we have four regions where we have inspectors, uh, coordinators in the northwest, it, uh, Tom Westergreen, in the Central West, it's uh, Bob Obudzinski. In, our, in, the, in the South, in the Southwest, it's Chuck Lorenz, and then on the East Side, Tom Agenzik again has just taken over in that new, in, in that job over there for the East Side of the Mountains. We've had problems in the past with getting um, inspectors on the East Side, but now with the DNR having a whole slew of new inspectors coming into our program, we should be able to catch up and get ahead of where we have been in the past. We hope to en enroll a whole bunch of new. Of people as well. I also want to give a shout out to Anita Crow, our secretary, who does all our minutes and whatnot. Out of even though our minute, our minutes are, or excuse me, our meetings are supposed to be in Olympia, she does it online out of uh, Kwikitat County. And Doug Hooks, who is a representative on our on our board as a representative from the the Forest Protection Association, and we get lots of support from members of the. Forest Protection Association, those are the big timber players in the state. Um, we, we're, we're especially appreciative of the, the support we get from the members of the, of the Forest Protection Association, including of Port Blakely, who volunteers all our bookkeeping for the, for the program. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's very generous of them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it is it's an amazing group of people, some really brilliant minds coming from all across the state uh and i gotta i think we'd be remiss to to not shout out to some of the foresters that are listening because we get a lot of landowners listening to this but we also get a lot of professionals and if we have uh any foresters in washington that aren't certified uh to to do tree farm inspections uh and you're interested please yeah look into that that's also on that watreefarm.org website Yes, and it gives you a chance to get out, reach out, and find new clients amongst our tree farmers. And also, it's it's fun to visit tree farms. It just is. It is as a part of the whole process. Yeah, so there, it's always a lot of fun. I I think I I end up getting a, a really good lunch out of it about half the time too. So <laughs> it's always a really nice day. And I know, I mean, we we talked about the certification, the fall forestry seminar, the calendar, but it doesn't really stop there. There's a lot of interesting stuff and ideas that that the tree farm program has and i know one of the things that uh, they're trying to do is figure out how can we like how can we value or or uh, more accurately talk and portray the value that small forest owners have to the environment uh, and and you guys have been making some interesting moves in that way as well yes one of the things that we did um was bob obazinski andrea watts John Hendrickson and John Madsen put together an ecological systems survey for all of the tree farm owners. And we had a pretty good response. I think 50 or 60 people responded saying all the different things that, that are provided to the, to the general public, to the to society in general, just by us being good tree farmers and, you know, things like that wildlife habitat, right. wetland, wetland preservation enhancement, um, carbon uptake and just all kinds of things. And, and, uh, there's a whole report that's again on our website that shows all those things. And that has now led to, uh, we're, we've, uh, 
Elaine O'Neill with Farm Forestry is now has a grant from the the legislature through the DNR to look at how small forest landowners can participate in carbon credit uh, payments. We're, we haven't got that finalized yet, but it looks like we're going to be able to. Uh, well, hopefully we can solve, we can crack the net so that the local um, forest plant, small forest landowners can participate. The, the American Forest Foundation has a similar program for the East, but that's a whole different that's a whole different ball game back in Pennsylvania. Right. We've got we have a whole different ecology out here, and so we have to look at it a new front out here. And so hopefully within the next few years we'll have something like that in line that people can participate in. Well, um, you know, it's been amazing talking to you, Dave. I really appreciate um you coming and or I guess tuning in and uh uh, and joining us for the podcast uh, between North Tree Farm and Washington Tree Farm Program. You're doing a lot of really great work. Um, and yeah, just really appreciate you joining us. And we'll uh, we'll close this one out. And unless you have any, any final thoughts? Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Patrick. As always. And I'm sure I'll be talking to you again soon. Uh, so thank you, Forest Overstory listeners. Uh, as always, I want to plug uh, our any and all WCU Extension events that may be happening in your area. Uh, you can look and find those on, on forestry.wsu.edu. And then I'll plug again the Washington Tree Farm Program, watreefarm.org.